Jesus Christ, come and stand forth from your word so that we might worship you. Thank you for this wonderful chapter of Holy Scripture. Thank you for the great blessing that it represents that we can't pack it all into one Lord's Day. We have to split it up into two. Thank you so much for showing us Christ in this passage. Thank thank you so much for working the qualities of Christ into us as we give ourselves to this passage. And thank you so much for blessing us with the privilege of proclaiming the Christ of this passage to the next generation, to our friends, to our enemies, to our co-workers and roommates, to those in our family, in our church family, and in our communities and beyond. Let the cause of Christ flourish with people lit up and white hot with passion for Christ. Cover the earth with the message of the gospel like the waters cover the sea and let everyone appointed to salvation be saved. Lord, we love you and we thank you for now doing wonderful and glorious things, more than I can even imagine to pray for. Out of 1 Samuel 25, the life of David, the life of Nabal, the worthless fool, and the life of Abigail, beautiful and discerning. Show us Christ. We would see Christ. In his name we pray and now study. Amen. We're going to go all the way through verse 31, even though... Paul only read, as I asked, only through verse 22. We cannot leave the story where it ends at verse 22. We're going to dive into verse 31 before we're done today. And I invite you to read the entire chapter to get ready for next Lord's Day. And I'm going to give you a challenge at the end of this message to prepare yourself to see Christ in all of 1 Samuel 25. Which would you like better? A world where you get to be the Savior of yourself and others or a world where you need the saving and God is your savior? Which would you like better? A world where you're the savior of yourself and others, or a world in which you need the saving and God is your savior? David's forced to ask that question. Our secret king, anointed by God, but not yet enthroned over Israel. This passage will show us three glorious truths about God meant to help us choose the second one. The world where we need the saving and God is our savior. Truth number one, God always reigns over his people. Even when it looks like God isn't on the scene, even when it seems like he's far away, even when it seems like you pray and nothing happens, even when it seems like you're in a tough situation and it doesn't get any better, even when it seems like the things he commands you to do, you're trying to do, but they're not happening, Still, God is on the throne and ruling over his people. Two, God always enacts his plan. Even when it seems like things are going sideways, God is enacting his plan. Even when it seems like things are going backwards, God is enacting his plan. And three, God always saves by a sacrifice for sin. God always saves by a sacrifice for sin. And I hope you can watch carefully in this chapter that Paul read for us and see Christ in the way Beautiful Abigail offers herself as a sacrifice for sin. Has the light of God's presence gone out in Israel? We're told in verse 1, Samuel died and they had a large funeral for him. Everyone gathered and buried him at Ramah. Do you remember Samuel when he came along as Hannah's miraculous born little boy? There was no light in Israel. Has the light gone out now that Samuel has died? Is there no one left who seeks after God? Is Israel falling back into the same dark situation it was in before? The gospel flourished in North Africa. 
in the third and fourth centuries up to the sixth and seventh centuries, you can't find hardly anybody who loves Jesus in North Africa anymore. The gospel flourished in Europe all the way through the 16th and 17th centuries, but you can't hardly find a church that preaches the gospel of Christ in Europe anymore. The gospel flourished in the United States. Can you find a church that preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the United States? May it be. May it be continually, if the Lord wills. Did God withdraw his light when Samuel died? What was David feeling? He might likely have gone to the funeral and he saw his beloved mentor, pastor, anointer, leader, spiritual teacher be buried in the ground. What is David thinking to himself? What's he feeling? Have you ever lost someone important to you like that? Has a parent been your spiritual leader and you buried them? Has a grandparent or a pastor, a missionary or a teacher, has a counselor or a mentor or a friend, maybe the person who led you to Christ, have they gone on to be with the Lord? And you felt some kind of emptiness after that. Some kind of coldness. Is it up to me? Are you still with me, God? Are you still on the throne? Is the world still going to turn? Is the church still going to thrive? Is the gospel still sweet and true? Can I still believe the things he or she taught me? David faces these questions when he's on the run from the murderous intent of Saul. We saw last chapter, he and Saul had a meeting of the minds. Saul actually said exactly what Samuel had said to him years before. The kingdom of God is going to be torn from you by God, Saul, because you've been disobedient. And God's going to give that kingdom that he once gave to you and now tears from you to one better than you, David. Now the kingdom is just about to come to David. And Saul has said it out loud. He's prophesied virtually, you will be the king eventually over Israel. Remember me, take care of my grandchildren when you are. Now the scenario that we have laid out for us in 1 Samuel 25 that Paul has read for us is a picture, yes, of what happens inside the heart of David. I think David is struggling. I think that's what we're told about Samuel's death. And I think David is going through a downtime. In fact, you yourself might be feeling like that. You might be feeling like you're spiritually dry. And being spiritually dry, you're vulnerable to make bad choices, sinful choices, that displease you and harm others and dishonor the Lord. That's what David does here. He just about does. And God sends a Christ-like figure in a woman named Abigail. Oh, this is beautiful. I love this chapter. I hope you come away loving it even a fraction as much as I do, and you will find it a great, great joy to your life. Samuel's effect was profound, but he's now dead and gone. David is still on the run from Saul. He's in his stronghold. He doesn't trust Saul. He doesn't know whether Saul will continue to chase him or not. But Saul is off the scene for this chapter, only briefly alluded to. And what you'll see as we walk through this passage is how God deals with the three main characters. He deals profoundly with Nabal, a wealthy man, very proud, very greedy, very, very much trusting in his wealth. Just as much as Saul lusted after power, Nabal lusts after his wealth and is very stingy with it. Then his wife, Abigail, beautiful and discerning, but oh, that's just the beginning. My, oh my, what an image of biblical womanhood is Abigail. Let there be Abigails. I married one. I'm raising one. Let there be lots of them in this church. Think I like this? This is great stuff. 
This whole world needs to set aside the silly visions of womanhood which are manipulative and coquettish on the one hand or controlling and attempting power grabs on the other hand and find the glorious God saturated joyful beautiful godliness of Abigail may it be so and may every man see Christ-like qualities even in Abigail and imitate and emulate them himself And seek to pray for and humbly, eagerly, passionately, even to the death of his own life, serve so that women thrive and flourish and grow strong and beautiful in this Abigail-like godly way. First, I want you to see the setting. This is why I say God always reigns over his people. Even when Samuel dies, God is still reigning over Israel. Even when Saul is fading from the scene and falling deeper and deeper into his mania. Still, God is on the throne. Even when David makes a poor choice and he's setting himself up here for making some very serious sinful choices, rivaling Saul. If you've read the rest of 1 Samuel and the rest of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings and other parts of the Bible, you know well David makes breathtakingly sinful choices that every one of us should be warned against. You'll see how that happens in his mind here and how he's held back from it in this very chapter. God reigns over his people always. Look at verses 1 through 8. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man, of, the man was Nabal, the name of his wife Abigail. It's important that you know Nabal means fool. Remember Psalm 14.1? The fool says in his heart there is no God. That's the Hebrew word Nabal. The Nabal says in his heart there is no God. Nabal's acting like there is no God. And the wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. That's also understatement. Not that we've seen what she looks like, but she's way more than discerning. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. That too is understatement taming it down he is a royal jerk Nabal he was a Calebite meaning he was a relative of David's it's important for you to know that Calebites were part of the tribe of Judah this is distant cousins this is part of the same clans and tribes inside Judah so that gives foundation to the interaction between David and Nabal and why it doesn't go well at the first David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men and said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. In other words, let the peace of God come on you. God is still on his throne. And I'm proclaiming peace to you because I've actually helped with my men watching over your sheep. We protected them. We, meaning David and the 600 men with me, we were shepherds to your sheep even though you didn't ask us. That's what's behind his peace blessing and his assumption and even proclamation that God is on his throne. I hear that you have shearers, verse 7. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. We're observing the feast days with the other uh, Hebrew Israelite 
worship observances. This is a feast day. All the more reason you're my kinsman, a Calebite. You've got lots of wealth. We took care of your sheep out in the wilderness. We didn't steal any of them. Protected them as a good shepherd would do. And it's a feast day. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. David is asking for what in the ancient Near East was an expected interchange of blessing. If we've protected a relative's wealth and belongings, something of that wealth and belonging should be given to us, especially to worship the Lord on the feast day. Like bread given to him by his friend Abimelech, the priest at Nob, David had every right to expect that those he was ministering to would help him, just as Jesus said when he sent out the 72 by 2, go to the house and eat what they put in front of you. David's acting in faith. He's trusting in God. He's proclaiming the peace of God and seeking to worship on the feast day his God. Second observation, God always enacts his plan. It comes from the next paragraph. Look at verse 9. When David's young men... They said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? you got to do a Jabba the Hutt sound. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? You're asking too much, Nabal. If you know his dad's name is Jesse, you kind of know who he is. Katja. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. He he is picturing David as a rebel from Saul. He's defining David in a wicked and evil way with his accusations and questions. And oh, how he loves what he owns. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Nabal refuses to help David and his men. He is filled with greed and confidence and boldness and pride in what he owns. This, of course, is wrong for Nabal to do. He's a fool. Even his wife calls him a fool, even by calling him by his first name. And he's acting according to his name. He should generously give something to David and his men for them to eat on the feast day, thanking them for the protection they provided out in the fields for his sheep. He does not. Look at verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. How many times can you say sword in a verse? And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Which is the Hebrew word that shows up in 1 Samuel, almost always meaning the spears. We've got weapons. i got a sword. Put on your sword. That Nabal's not going to get away with keeping back what's ours. I spoke to him respectfully and kindly. And I honored the Lord while I asked him just for something for us to eat because we did him a favor in protecting his sheep. He wouldn't have sheep to shear if it wasn't for us. Sharpen your sword. Is this a different David? Is this a godly David? This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, says a young red-cheeked boy. And I will strike you down. And cut off your head, Goliath. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. So which is it, David? When you come up against Goliath, you're saved by the power and hand of God. When you come up against Nabal, you strap on your sword. You tell your men to strap on their sword. Are you the same man, David? Are you the king in preparation? Are you learning what God means for you to learn about self-restraint and waiting on God and trusting in God and using God's methods to get God's work done in God's way so that God gets all the glory? Or are you interested in advancing David's cause? Do you feel scared and fearful? You know that's why people use sharp words, don't you? There's deep insecurity inside. There's deep fears inside that I won't be understood, I won't be respected, I won't be valued, I won't be treasured. And so I'm going to use sharp-edged words like a sword to hurt people. Can't help but think David's feeling mighty alone these days. But that's no excuse for turning away from trusting in God. He's about to commit sin here and he's about to lead his 400 men to go with him to commit sin against Nabal. And it wouldn't be the worst funeral in the world to go to if the fool in Carmel died. But it'd still be sin for David to kill him without cause. Jesus says... You might not even own a sword, and your kitchen knives might be quite dull. But you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, Nabal, will be liable to the hell of fire. Why? Because... My mouth and your mouth and the way we talk to one another and the way we talk about one another when we're not together is worse than sword wielding. It's worse than thrusting someone through with the sword. It's why the colloquialism is so powerfully true. I think I was just stabbed in the back. Proverbs 11.9, with his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor and by knowledge the righteous are delivered. Proverbs 11, 11, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, and by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Proverbs 18, 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. How deeply cuts the conviction of the word of God from those Proverbs in my own soul that I have used my mouth at times to hurt people worse than if I was using a sword. Here, in response to Nabal's foolish pride that everybody agrees with, his foolish pride and, and ungenerous and unkind and unjust, yet David isn't acting like David and he's not acting like God. Who's David acting like? He's not even acting like Samuel. He's acting a lot like Saul. And in fact, he's acting a lot like Nabal himself, blood for blood. And he's acting a lot like Goliath, who trusted in his sword and mocked David for being nothing more than a dog or a flea. 
God has this wonderful way of saying, David, you're about to commit sin, but I have generously supplied to you a glorious provision, a foretaste of your own descendant, the son of David, Jesus Christ, someone who will come right into your face and with humility and with boldness in a glorious intermingling, sacrifice herself to drain away all your wrath against Nabal. God always is on his throne. He's always enacting his plan. And we're watching him, through now the wife of Nabal, Abigail, train and teach David glorious truths about who's on the throne and doing the saving. It is not David. He's about to learn that when they sang of him, David kills his ten thousands, that was God killing those ten thousands. He's about to learn that when he slung a stone and it hit the temple of Goliath and Goliath fell over, that was God doing the slinging. And oh, the brilliance, the brilliance of Abigail when she talks. Now, here's my challenge. I told you to read the rest of 1 Samuel 25. Read the whole chapter of 1 Samuel 25. And I challenge you to look up 12 ways in which Abigail acts like Jesus. Twelve ways in which Abigail acts like Jesus. All the scholars I checked up agreed. Together, I counted them up. We found twelve ways that Abigail acts like Jesus. I've got time for only five. First, she brings such wisdom, such pure wisdom. Look at verses 14 through 17. But one of the young men, so this is one of Nabal's men, comes running back after finding out David is strapping on his sword, and he goes to Abigail, Nabal's wife. He doesn't go to the head of the household. He goes to Abigail. He knows that she's going to hear and listen and make a calm-headed, wise decision. He doesn't trust for nothing his master, Nabal. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them, yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as... We went with him. So he's proclaiming David's truthfulness. They were a wall to us both night and day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. So this messenger is saying Nabal owes them food and care for the protection of sheep that David and his men supplied. And they really did supply it, the messenger says. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he... Nabal is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. (laughs) I think it's amazing that this messenger goes right to Abigail and notices the freedom with which he talks about her husband to her. And just imagine her nodding her head and agreeing, like this is not the first time I've had to bail Nabal out of a mess that his sin has gotten us into. She's a lover of truth. This messenger tells the truth to her, and it probably means she has endured suffering and condemnation and hardship at the hands of her husband, maybe even abuse for the entirety of their marriage. So here's a woman, beautiful and discerning, telling the truth and long-suffering, married to a man like Nabal. Second thing about Abigail, look at verses 18 through 22. She is very willing to pay a fool's debt. She's paying her husband's debt. 
Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before, behold, I come after you. And she did not tell her husband. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men come down toward her, and she met them. And as the men are coming, David and his men, she knows they're marching to do battle with her husband and her household, killing all the men. And she hears what David says. She overhears, as it were, David's plan. Verse 21, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So she sees fire breathing out of David's nostrils. She knows death is coming to her house. And she, in all wisdom, brings all the food and blessing that her husband owed to David. She decides the rightful cause. She judges justly. Samuel's dead, but Abigail is still in Israel. Third, Look at her humility and intercession. How beautiful and Christ-like this is. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. That stops David dead. That's Christ-like. What woman do you know in literature is willing to recognize the foolishness of her husband and yet stand up in front of a warrior king like David and say, put the guilt on me? This is glorious. This points me to Jesus Christ right on the face of it. The wife of an angry, selfish fool like Nabal is willing to have his guilt played on her. Is she blind? Is she kowtowed? Is she fearful and enabling an abusive husband? No, she knows exactly what kind of a man he is. She's going to use his name and define his name for David in just a minute. She wants to make sure that she treats her king, David, with honor and even seems to be intentionally protecting his godliness and keeping him from sin. Rarely, if ever, do we see such a strong, bold, decisive, godly woman elevated in our culture, even in the church, yet bearing such submissive humility both to God, to God's King David, and even honoring, as best as she can, her husband, Nabal. What a beautiful picture of biblical womanhood. Fourth, a godly lover's oath of protection. Look at how she speaks with Covenant, vocabulary, and terms which declare a blessing and an oath upon herself and upon David. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives. Now she's talking about Yahweh and she's taking an oath. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. How did she know that? Is she talking about in Getty, where Saul just had the corner of his robe cut off by David, who mercifully let him alive and refrained from killing him? 
Is she talking about other scenarios where David, in restraint and kingly godliness, held back violence when he had the right to defend himself? Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. There it is. Don't save with your own hand, David. Don't save with your own hand, faith family at the landing. Let God do the saving. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Fools. What a beautiful oath she takes. And she's calling on David to live up to his highest standards of restraint. Remember, David, when you said in the valley when you took on Goliath that it was the Lord who would fight the battle, not by sword or spear. Remember that, David. That's who you are. Don't you want somebody in your life who's constantly treating you like the best person you're supposed to be before God? Don't you want someone in your life who's always pushing you to godliness? I've had so many people in my life that I thank God for. I had a youth pastor, parents, a wife, son and daughter, lots of you, lots of friends in other parts of the world who push me like Abigail is pushing David. She keeps going. And she gets so prophetically brilliant here. This is so wonderful. Verse 27, now let this present, all these things that she brought, that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. She didn't commit any trespass. But she says, forgive the trespass of your servant, referring to himself, herself. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you to seek your life, the Lord of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. What a blessing. Stay bound in the bundle of the living, David. The Lord will protect you. And then she says so wisely, in the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Wow, that's good, Abigail. You knew David was known for swinging his sling. But you knew God was the one who slung Goliath out of his way as an enemy. It wasn't the stone. It wasn't David. It wasn't his sling. It was God. And God is still on his throne in Israel, even though Samuel's dead. And you know that David's going to know the vocabulary of a sling. And she says, let God be the one to sling away all your enemies, David. Nabal is squarely resting in the sling of Almighty God. And God can whip him anytime he wants. It's going to happen before the chapter's over. What brilliant speech Abigail is offering. What truth, what God-glorifying power, what wisdom, what encouragement, what challenge to David. Stop with your hand on the hilt of your sword and do not trust in your military skill. You're not your Savior. You're not our Savior. God is our Savior. You exist as King to remind us of that. Don't forget who you are, David. Do you have people helping you remember who you are? They're the most precious people in your life. Finally, look at the good news she brings. She's an evangelist. She proclaims good news in her speech. And it's done in these two verses. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good 
That word good makes me think of the good news. That's why I call her an evangelist here. To all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. She is treating David like he's king already. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord working salvation himself. You see there's the theme. David was tempted to work salvation for himself. Which is why I began by asking which world do you like? The one where you're the savior or the one where you need saving and God is the savior? When the, world, when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And boy, does he remember her. Abigail's character is Christ-like. She's generous. She's bold. She's humble. She speaks God's pure wisdom. She's trustworthy to her servants and even her husband. She honors David repeatedly and recognizes God's hand upon him for future kingship. She treats David like a king and proclaims oaths of blessing on him. She proclaims protection, provision, and salvation from God to David. She seeks to preserve David from his own guilt before God. She even takes onto herself the guilt and wrongdoing of her husband and makes atonement for it, though she did not commit it. You find them, 12 ways in which Abigail acts like Jesus. Where do people like this come from? Well, let's notice just three quick things about Abigail that are very sweet and help us understand her. She suffered for a long time. You don't live with a man like Nabal as your husband, wondering if today's the day you leave him every single day. You don't watch him do foolish things like this and not endure incredible suffering. And that suffering is what enlarges and expands your capacity to know and love and serve God. I'll never forget sitting just feet away from Helen Rosevere. Do you know that name? Helen Rosevere. Sat feet away from her in the living room with 50 other people of John and Noel Piper in the spring of 1988. Helen had come from England. She was touring around the U.S. going to churches and she was going to talk to people about missionary suffering at the Piper's living room that night and I was able to be there. Got a seat next to her. And uh, she talked about serving as a missionary medically in the Congo in the 1950s and the 1960s. And there was a lot of unrest during that time. And in the Congo, men came and blamed her for the unrest and any other Westerners. And they did unspeakably horrible things to her. Unspeakably horrible things. For months. She finally was able to escape those men and leave the Congo, go back to England where she was from, and heal up and get better in spiritual, emotional, and physical ways. And then she said, I want to go back to the Congo and I want to continue my work. So she's telling us this whole story and she didn't leave the unspeakable parts unspoken. And someone in the room raised their hand and said, why did you go back? And she said this. She says this on a talk she gives too. You can go listen on YouTube to Helen Rosevere's testimony. She says, I went back because I knew Jesus loved me and I loved him so much I just wanted to show him how much I loved him by serving him with my whole life. And then she said, and he taught me to ask him for the ability to thank him for the suffering. And he gave me the ability to thank him for the suffering because it was in the suffering that I had fellowship sweetly with him and the power, learn to live in the power of his resurrection. That's Helen Rosevere's answer to us. And then it's now available by her book. She's got nine or ten books out. And by her recordings. 
She was about 65 or so when I heard her speak back in 88. She died and went to be with the Lord, graduated into glory in 2016 at the age of 91. Abigail's like that. She's just like that. That's part of the secret of why she is the way she is. The second is she has a massive vision of God. I'm sure she grieved that Samuel died, but she is not for one second losing her faith. Look at the voice of someone like Abigail in Israel under the pressures of her marriage and under the the limitations that were hers in that day. And yet look at the way she talks to David. It's magnificent. And finally, you need to know that she makes a lot out of names. She said her husband's name, Nabal, is fool. Fool says in her heart, there is no God. You know what her name means? My father is joy. My father is joy. You have a baby, name her Abigail. My father is joy. She gets joy from her heavenly father. That's why she can talk that way to David. She's like Hannah. The generation before who had Samuel and here now is Abigail. So I'm going to end this way. If you're a Nabal and you're in the hearing of my voice, you have time to repent of your foolishness. Jesus died on the cross and paid the full debt of your foolishness. There's more grace in Jesus than there is foolishness in you. Repent of your sin, Nabal, and be saved. We'll give you a new name. If you're a David, do not try to take God's plans into your own hands. Do not take God's plans into your own hands. If you think God's up to something and you know good things are coming and he's promised his promises to you and you've read his word and you see the blessings that are yours in Christ, don't seize them and take them in your way and in your timing. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Turn to the left and the right and listen to those bearing witness to Christ who might be in your very own home or in your life, speaking truthfully truthfully to you even now. Wait on God. Trust in him. Be content. Rest in him. And if you're Abigail, so saturate your mind on the glories of God, so saturate your mind on his word, so saturate your mind by his Holy Spirit that you boldly speak out in all humility to those rightly in authority over you the glorious things of God. Prophesy, boldly teach and say in every method and means you've been given all the glorious things of God. Use everything that you can use to declare the glories of God to the needy world around you. Whether to believers who need to be stopped dead in their tracks, trusting in God, not their sword, or whether to husbands who need to fully repent and turn around. One day, dear Abigails, one day, like Christ, oh, how you will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, bless, I pray, this brief and broken attempt at understanding a glorious chapter of Holy Scripture. Thank you for 1 Samuel 25. Thank you for Abigail's life and even in an odd way Nabal's life. And thank you for David. Thank you for the lessons that are here for us to learn and enjoy. Thank you for the glories that are here for us to see. In the Lord's day to come, would you show us even more from this chapter the way your servant 
Abigail is just like your son, Jesus, in mighty, mighty ways. And work it in us. Make it so attractive to us that we don't just close the Bible and set it aside and forget it like we never saw it, but that you'd burrow deeply into our being these realities. They're not just an admirable woman of 3,000 years ago. These are your character traits and qualities. These are the things you died to produce in us. Your servant, Paul said to Titus, Christ died to redeem us from lawlessness and to create a people zealous for good works. So create that Abigail-like zeal in us by the cross, I pray, through Jesus. Amen. We're going to close our service before we sing with a commissioning of all our deacons. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward, please. The elders join me. We're going to pray over them after they take a brief pledge. Join me down in the front. I'm going to read off the names. These are deacons that we voted in last Lord's Day. Mark Figge, Susan York, Tom Florestano, Jeff Blevins, Sherry Blevins, Kathy Hayes, Matt Hayes, Angie Hayes, Wilson Janetti, Diane Dick, Sherry Fillmore, John Franzen, Irv Stoffer, Denny O'Hara, Tom Scher, Mark Stewart, and Lori Stewart. If you are here, and it looks like you are, thank you for coming up. Elders, join me. Um, I'm going to ask a brief question to all the deacons. And if you are willing, say collectively and out loud the two-word answer, we will. Say the collective two-word answer out loud, we will. By grace and with God's help, will you continue to extend Christ's mercy to the needs before you and so assist the elders in the work of the gospel? In reliance upon his Holy Spirit, will you invite others to join you in this mercy work as we seek together to glorify God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And your answer? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I would invite uh, any of the elders who wish to launch out to begin, please.